Here we are again, folks, and uh, it's a sad occasion because Alan Toussaint has passed away, one of my, really my all-time favorite American music makers, just a piano player, a songwriter, a producer, just a presence, really one of those few people with a completely singular voice. You know, he just took everything that was going on in New Orleans and made it just these little perfect contemporary pop records just some of my favorites uh this show was from april 25th 2009 and it was two hours of just alan toussaint music all uh stuff he he worked on in some way or covers of his stuff you can find it at wfmu.org slash michael if you want to hear the whole show with all the alan toussaint related music he uh i think i i met him i I cannot remember if I met him the next couple days or two years later at the next Ponderosa Stomp. Ended up meeting him, and he he clearly didn't remember me, but he probably talks to a lot of journalists. But for some reason, I thought this was just a really special interview. I really liked it. He's a little bit of a closely held guy. Interesting guy. Always dressed really well. Drove his uh, Rolls Royce to the Ponderosa Stomp. Parked it right out in front of the club. Uh... Just, just amazing performer. Just so much great music. Anyways, he will be missed. That's all I can tell you. I'm just thankful, lucky that I had this opportunity to talk to him. Uh, that's it, folks. Some good stuff coming up. Check wfmu.org/michael. Uh, once again, from April 25th, 2009, my chat with the great Alan Toussaint. There's the great Alan Toussaint. That's the title track, The Bright Mississippi, from his new record. Alan Toussaint, welcome to WFMU. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well and wonderful New Orleans. Uh, you know, yeah, you're in New Orleans. I'll actually be there tomorrow, so I'll uh, I'll run into you. But that I just listened to that record. I don't know how it sounded on hold, but it sort of sounds contemporary, yet reverent, yet timeless. It, it's in a, it has an amazing sonic quality to it. Oh, yes. Uh, well, for one thing, the songs are so dear and... There's so much of what of their own period, so any time you play them, they're strong enough to hold on to that aspect of it. But of course, the freshness of us doing it recently uh, brings uh, a new life to it. Yeah, it's really just a, a great album, with getting amazing reviews. But I want to end there. Let's start at the beginning. I think the beginning is always a good place to start. Born January fourteenth, nineteen thirty-eight, in just outside of New Orleans, in New Orleans suburb, right? In New Orleans, right in smack dab in the middle. <laughs> smack dab in the middle. And w- what was childhood like? Wonderful. My neighborhood was a neighborhood full of shotguns, uh, shotgun houses. I'm, I mean, <laughs> let me clarify that. <laughs> shotgun houses, we call them. They're lovely neighborhoods. Uh, very humble indeed, but high in spirit, and uh, everyone knows each other. Uh, it was uh, wonderful, and there were. Uh, old men in the neighborhood who after work would pull out a guitar here and there 
And so we heard music being played around and about. And did your folks have a radio? Did your folks play music? Did they uh, dislike music? What was the... Well, we we had radio because uh, in my very early childhood, uh, I can remember before we had TV, I knew anyone who had one. So radio was important. Uh, before I was born, my father was a weekend trombone, I mean, I'm sorry, trumpet player that played in a big band on weekends. Uh, but however, he had a family of three, three uh, children and a wife, so he quickly had to become a railroad engineer who was at his mechanic. Hmm. So he spent 40 years as a railroad mechanic. Uh, and uh, But before I was born, he was a, a trumpet player. I'm glad to say, and my brother, uh, who was a few years older than me, he, uh, as a teenager, around 16 or 17, he began playing the guitar. So, and, uh, so it was so, in your blood, in your family, I guess. Oh, yes, I would say so, definitely. And uh, your first band, I believe, was Snooks Eaglin, who just recently passed away. You guys were just kids, really. Oh, yes, we were 13 and 14. Uh, Snooks England was the guitarist. The band was called the Flamingos. <laughs> very, very classy. A bunch of neighborhood guys, and uh, we had a wonderful time. And what kind of songs were you guys doing at that age? Whatever was on the radio. Huh. As far as the uh, R&B, which wasn't called R&B yet, but uh, all of whatever was popular on the radio, we were doing those things. And we played uh, uh, sock hops, uh, high school dances and also we played in some clubs outside of town what we were too young to be in but uh, at that time uh, uh, we were able to get away with that and what do those kind of gigs pay those very early gigs well the the maximum was eight dollars and fifty cents <laughs> that was pretty darn good how do you divide that up that's tough yeah Oh, well, yes. Well, $8.50 each. Oh, well, that's not bad. Okay. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, what was your dad making on the railroad? Oh, I don't. I have no idea. Uh, that was, uh, I have no idea how, what kind of money he was making, but he supported his family in our humble neighborhood. All worked out. So at that age, did you think, well, this is what I'm going to do forever. I'm still going to be putting out records, you know, 70 well, years later. Well, before, yeah, when I was a... Very a young child, I just I thought I actually thought then yes I will be doing this forever. <laughs> it was love at first touch. Or maybe you've got some mind reading skills, or you can see the future. Did you study music ever? Did anyone sit down and show you how to play the piano, how to read music? Well, the first one who showed me, because I first began picking out a, a little humble melodies on the piano uh, in a most humble version, I might say. And my sister, who was ta who began taking piano lessons, that the piano was there for her, uh, she hated her lessons, but she was a smart girl. And she took lessons for a few lessons before she quit. But she learned enough to show me, this E that you're playing here is there on the page. So that was my first uh, introduction to theory. Then I took about eight lessons uh, at a junior school when I was about nine. Uh, a ten, and my mother knew that the boogie woogies and the likes had me already, so it was too late. <laughs> so about eight lessons was my uh, academics, uh, and that was about it. How but interesting! Uh, so I, I think your first sort of proper gig subbing on the piano for Huey Piano Smith in Earl King's band, right? Uh, that was the one who transported me from the 
uh, teenage or adolescent world to the matured world, yes. Uh, where did Huey Smith find you? Where did he see you? Well, he, he didn't. Uh, the, the saxophone player in that band, his name was Robert Caffrey, and he was called Catman. And he had heard of me as being this kid around town who could play all of the things that were on the radio mm. and knew all of the songs that were out of the day. And he called me to play in Huey's stead, and I had a wonderful time. We played in, I played with Earl King and Roland Cook's band, and it was in Pritchett, Alabama, and it was a wonderful uh time and it was a rite of passage yeah and it seems to me that that might be the linchpin that got you to drop out of high school and just dive into the deep end of music is that right well uh, that partially but uh, uh the same group of people it was when Sherlyn lee was about to uh well actually you you know you're right about that come to think about it because earl king began to have so many performances till i couldn't make it back uh, I couldn't make it to school the next morning. So, uh, yes, I must say, but I did try going back to school because I really felt I was supposed to go to school. But then Sherlyn Lee later on, with that same band who used to accompany Earl King, Sherlyn uh, uh, Hugh Smith was about to come into his own, and uh, he had to leave that position with Sherlyn Lee, and again I took his place. And that was the end of school. Hmm. So you started touring with Shirley and Lee, and that was the end of school. Did your parents go crazy, or did they understand? They understood. They understood very well, because they saw how, what a great zeal I had for what I was doing. Yeah, I think that was just your calling, and nobody could really argue with that. Yes. Uh, let's talk about Dave Bartholomew. He, uh, a legendary guy, I mean, his name is on almost as many good records as you. And he saw you and got you started doing some studio work, is that right? Well, I had been doing studio work before he called me in, but once he called me in, of course, uh, that was a milestone in my life that I worked uh, for Dave Bartholomew, and then to play in Fat Domino's stead, hmm. who was one of the biggest artists in the world at the time, if not the biggest. Yeah, people forget just how giant, uh, in both ways, uh, Fats was. I mean, he was, yeah, he was like the biggest artist in the world. Uh, yeah, and you played on a few Fats Domino records because Fats was on the road and couldn't play his own parts, right? That's right. We were up to two-track recording, multi-track. Mm. So we could play the band on one track and the voice on another. So Dave called me in because they had a deadline to play on a song called I Want You to Know and uh, another one, something about a schoolgirl and another that I don't recall. <laughs> but I was very happy to do that. And, uh, and Dave had called me in uh, even before then, uh, a few weeks before then, to play on a song by a lady. So when I began to communicate with Dave Bartholomew, that was quite a life-changing experience because I, I tried to be around him as much as I could because I highly respected him and regarded him as the man who has arrived to the places we would like to go. Yeah, and definitely sort of you took the ball from him and, and took it to the next level. Uh, you know, as the years progressed. So, you know, as I was preparing today's show, and we just heard 28 songs that I'm pretty sure you had something to do with, and I say it that way because a lot of the records have no credits on them whatsoever. You know, oh, yeah. It's very hard to know who's doing what on a record. So what are some of the very early sessions that you did? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Hundreds. I mean, I, I would need to know which ones you were going to. Like, just what was your first two or three sessions, you know? Well, they were with... 
like me and Dr. John, well, Mac Rebernack played on sessions like when I was 15 and 16 <laughs> and uh, was on a, a duet called Joyce and Judy. I don't know what the name of the songs were. <laughs> and then I played with Billy Tate, who was a blind uh, a guitarist who worked at the Dew Drop and other places around town. Uh, and that was a recording called Right From Wrong and The Other Side, whatever it was. Hmm. Uh, and so what did those early dates pay? Oh, oh, the musicians in the studio, the sidemen got $41 and a quarter. 41 and a quarter. That's not bad, especially if you were doing a few a day, you know, a couple sessions a day. Oh, yeah. Well, it was usually one a day but uh, hmm. for us, but that was nice. Yeah, 41 and a quarter, and the leader, whoever the leader was, got double that. Hmm. So let's, the, 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 how did you transition into being the leader? How did you transition from being the piano player to the guy who was the arranger, the guy who sort of put it together? Well, sometimes when we were in recording, uh, uh, the whoever the talent scout was would have an artist, and they may have had one song, and they needed another song. If they did, uh, the guy would come over to the piano sometime and ask, uh, "Do you have any songs?" And and of course, I sometime I'd say, "I don't know," but if we take a break, I will get one. <laughs> and uh, we'd take a break, and I'd write a song, and we'd come back in and record that. Huh. So I got to be known as one who could do that. Wow. But let me say that uh, when I be really became leader of the sessions is when Minute Records started. Right. M-I-N-I-T. And uh, it was owned by Dave Bethal... I'm sorry. Dave's name rings in my head all the time. It was owned by Larry McKinley and Joseph Banishak. And uh, they called me in to, to do their to be their A&R man or their producer until Harold Baptiste would come, who was going to be their permanent person. But uh, when I got with them, and Harold was out with Sun and Cher at the time, uh, and they were very satisfied with me, so Hal Harold stayed on out on the West Coast where he lived at the time, mm. and I very happily uh, latched on to Minute, and that's when I started being the guy who was in charge of all of whatever it took to make the music. Yeah, I think when you hooked up with Minute is maybe 1960 or 61, you're still a very, very young man, and you start churning out so many records. I should point out, I think your first solo record is 1958 on RCA. Is that right? Oh, yeah, Wild Sound of New Orleans. Right, and it's an, I love that record, and I've read sometimes that you think it's a little immature sounding. Oh, it is, because, <laughs> because I was immature. But, uh, oh, it's a beautiful record. It's, uh, it's, uh, and, of course, I wasn't thinking target markets and all that kind of stuff. So I, was, I was just playing things. and uh, But, uh, but I, I like it I, because everything is a snapshot of somewhere in your life. Absolutely. And, and, uh, so it has its own place. Yeah, so back to Minute Records. I mean, we're talking about Ernie Cato and Aaron Neville and Benny Spellman and Irma Thomas and the Showman and... You're also working with Chris Kenner and Lee Dorsey. I mean, the sheer number of songs. I mean, there's 20 great Irma Thomas songs and, you know, 15 great Benny Spellman songs and 15 great Ernie Cato songs, and you wrote all of them. Every, well, thank you. It's, thank you very much. I'm wondering, how did you have the inspiration? Where did it come from? Well, uh, when we were doing that, the way we lived in, those, uh, in, uh, in the days back there, uh, these artists like Irma and Benny and Aaron and and Willie Harper and Calvin LeBlanc, they would all be at my parents' house. We all would gather in the front room, the first room in the house, where there was the piano. It was the first two rooms where my parents had just surrendered it to us. 
and we would uh, make music all day long. I would write songs for someone, and everyone who was there, or whoever was around about, would sing back up to the song that I had just written. And and while that person I wrote that song would go into the next room and and continue to learn their song, I would write a song for someone else at, in the room. Did it occur to you at the time that that was like a superhuman ability, sort of? Oh, no, it was just very natural and fun. Huh. Uh, I think we saw it as so much fun. It, it took us a long time to recognize it as the business that it was. Yeah, I, just the sheer numbers is is completely overwhelming. I think it's almost, it's so many, I think people don't understand how many songs you've written just because it's it's so unusual. Oh, well, yes, at the time it was just the, what we did all day long. Just woke up and write a few songs. I think maybe, is this right, that part of the inspiration came from writing the songs for the specific singer? That's still the case, yes. I prefer doing it that way. Because singers bring uh, themselves to the table, and it brings something that you wouldn't have done on your own. Like, I could never have written Working in the Coal Mine for no one but Lee Dawson. Mm. Not that he had anything to do with a coal mine, but for some reason... His voice and his whole, uh, 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 everything about him suggests that I could write such a, uh, sem- a semi-humorous song that had nothing to do with his life. Yeah, yeah, right. very interesting. Uh, let's talk about the Dew Drop In. It seems like everything I read about New Orleans, there's no article about New Orleans that does not mention that club, the Dew Drop In. What was your experiences there, and how often were you there, and what was going on there? During that period, in fact, that was the period when I first went out with Earl King, as we spoke of earlier. To do that, uh, I was to, when Catman called me, uh, Bob Caffrey, uh, and asked, could I do this performance? And I said, yes, immediately. And we met at the Dewdrop. That was a famous nightclub in New, New Orleans that had shows, actual shows, uh, stage shows, four nights a week. And they would have an MC a guest artist, and they would have a, sh- a shake dancer. We call them shake dancers. I think they call them other things as well. <laughs> but uh, sometimes with a snake wrapped around them, but a shake dancer indeed. And it, it had shows. I guess you might say it was our, it was the New Orleans version of a cotton club. But was it the place also business was done and deals were made and folks were spotted and, hey, oh, you, you got a song? Oh, and- oh, yes, yes. We would all meet there. Before going to performances, the bands would meet each other there, and they would take off from there. And when they got through with their performances uh, four hours later, they'd all meet back there and just hang out. So many people would uh, would see folk there. And when Dave Bartholomew called me in to play, he came to the Dewdrop where I was performing, and that's when that's where he notified me that he would like me to perform on his recording. Mm. And so, yes, it was that kind of place. It was a wonderful place to be, both inside the club and hanging out in front of the club, because musicians hung out in front of that club. And and all day and all night, there were some musicians in front of the dewdrop. <laughs> it sounds like, a, like a, you know, just a diamond. I mean, it just sounds amazing. Uh, 1963... You know, the Beatles in, invade, Motown is doing great, and you get drafted. I mean, it's it's a giant... You're right in the middle of this incredibly fertile period, turning out these giant hits, uh, and you get you end up in the Army in Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, what was Army life l- like? Did they have you shooting guns? I mean, 
No, I, in fact, I would have liked to have done more army than I did, but I played the piano most all the time in the army. Mm. In fact, even in basic training, I, I, I did a very little bit of that, but I, they would uh, come and get me, even if I was on the way to the field, and say that you need it at the PX, so a certain person wants you because they're going to have a show and they would like you to participate. Uh, and then my permanent duty in Fort Hood, Texas, I was the pianist for the Soldiers' Chorus. So my hours of duty was from 1 o'clock in the afternoon till 3. And aside from that, uh, I was on my own. Oh, that's great. And, and <laughs> So I had, a, I had a wonderful time in the home, to be perfectly frank. I did feel, however, that I was missing out on what was going on outside and uh, for those two years from 63 to 65. and. Yeah. When I did get out the army, it was the first time I ever tried to write a hit song. When I wrote Ride Your Pony, I was trying to write a hit. You said, I need to get back and kind of establish myself? Yes, and I thought all of the horses were all the way around the curve except me. So I wrote Ride Your Pony. (laughs) How interesting. Uh, I'm glad to hear the army wasn't uh, terrible except for the the frustrating fact. I need to go back and ask you, uh, I don't want to take your whole afternoon, but I want to hear, especially, I want to hear a couple sentences about a couple different people, uh, especially Chris Kenner. Uh, I've read that this guy was just the worst equipped guy to be a star, but, but very talented. What was he like? He was, uh, uh, in fact, I never heard it that way, but I understand how one would describe him that way. Uh, he was a uh, kind of solemn guy. He he was a, a bit aloof for like he wouldn't hang. He didn't hang with us all day like the other artists would. Hmm. So he would come in for a segment of his stuff, and when it was through, when I was through with just his song, uh, his whatever we were there to do, he would go on back to his environment uh, which he spent a lot of time alone but he'd, he'd uh, except of course at the do drive he would come and hang out in front of the do drop like everyone else but always had less to say in the conversation interesting he did come up with some great songs oh yes yes mm. very uh, he was very much uh, a church kind of singer uh, but really came up with wonderful ideas yeah. Land of a Thousand Dance, something you got. I like it like that. And were those written in his head or on an instrument? In his head, of course. He just and, uh, and many times they weren't finished, but it was my job to finish them. Hmm. Cause, but they were such good seed ideas that there was no problem to do that. Hmm. It was wonderful. Tell me about Ernie Cado. He just passed away. Uh, he passed away. Few, his wife just passed away, I guess. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, again, an, a guy with a lot of personality. Oh, yeah, Undercato had the most personality you can have in this business. (laughs) For one thing, he was very convinced that he was a star long before anyone else was. (laughs) And he he had no trouble letting everyone know it. (laughs) But that wasn't a problem, because uh, he was like Muhammad Ali. He he would brag and then get in there and knock him out. Yeah, right. He had the, the hits to back it up. Okay, uh, while you're in the Army, you play with a bunch of Army guys, and you call yourselves the Stokes, and there's a bunch of records released on some different names, and one of them is Whipped Cream, which Herb Albert ends up uh, covering and going on the dating game. Uh, it's a huge, huge song, just like Java gets uh, covered. Yeah. A, again, a huge song. And I, 
right about then after you, uh, the army, you meet Marshal Seahorn, and you talked about what an important guy Joe Banishek was for you, and uh, Dave Bartholomew before that, and then Marshal Seahorn and you uh, form. Uh, you know, for a long time, you guys were partners. My first question, were there other offers at that time? I mean, you were clearly could start over, sort of, uh, and, and you started with Marshall. Were there other offers? Oh, yes. But once I was with Marshall, uh, there was no, uh, I, w- I wasn't even threatened to, uh, threatening to go anyplace else at that in those early days. Hmm. Because once I am with, uh, well, my first company being Minute, but I would consider once I'm with the company, that's it. Uh, I'm married, and that's that. <laughs> and uh, I didn't run around. Okay. Uh, so. well, you cemented, you'd made a few records with Lee Dorsey, but right at that point, you and Lee Dorsey, you know, become like this, you know. I'm holding my fingers next to each other. Uh, the, the amount of great music you made with Lee Dorsey, for me, is is maybe, you know, just the pinnacle of your work. It just seemed like everything came together. You know, the, the sound in the studio, the musicians, the arrangements, and the songs, and the singer, it's all right there. And they're, they're pop songs, but they're, you know, they're contemporary and R&B and, and definitely have a New Orleans feel to them. There's so much going on in those great records. And like you said before, they're funny and they're, you know, they're, they're so much, you know. Yes. We had a good time, <laughs> and I spent a lot of time with Lee Dorsey, in and out of the studio and in and out of the business. We 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 did lots of things together. We'd go out in the evening together uh, with other guys and gals, and uh, had a wonderful time. And we rode motorcycles together, raced Cadillacs together, did lots of things. Where do you race a Cadillac? On uh, quiet streets at night. <laughs> You know, I I read in in Mac Rebinac's book. He talks about growing up in New Orleans, and what a almost a lawless place it was. Policemen just kind of did their own thing, and you know, if they wanted to, you know, break some heads, they just did it, and nobody nobody ever got in trouble for that. You know, and uh, was it a tough place to grow up? Was it a weird place to grow up? Well, I guess it might be according to who you are and as you are, but. For me, I, I didn't find it to be a, a rough place to grow up. Hmm. Uh, it was wonderful to me at all times because I was already, uh, I, early on I began doing what I was to do in life, so I was always busy about that. And that didn't seem to really get me into trouble. Hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, so I was, I'm fine with it. Uh, I can't say I have any really hard luck stories about New Orleans. That's great. Uh- Lee Dorsey, you know, uh, just an amazing talent, a great guy. And I've always thought in some ways a sort of a substitute for yourself. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I haven't thought about it like that. But what the, uh, I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> I'm not sure what I mean either. Okay. <laughs> it's just, you know, you know, at that point you really hadn't committed to being a solo artist and Lee could sort of do it for you or play a side of your personality that was a little more fun or a little more jovial than you felt you could do yourself? Well, I I never thought of myself as a solo artist, mm-hmm. never. Uh, if I, Whenever I did that, it was at a request by someone else. I always loved dearly. Uh, working with artists and writing songs for artists and getting the music together and making it work and arranging. I, that's my comfort zone, and I, I'm very happy, and, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, where I belong. Hmm. It's uh, interesting. 
Because, uh, well, in that period, you made great records for Betty Harris and Willie Harper and Eldridge Holmes and others. And one of the things that, that ties all those records together are the background vocals, which seems to be a chorus of Alan Toussaint's at times. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, it was just easier for me to do them sometimes than to teach others to do it. Yeah, and it, it gives it a great, great sound. So the end of the 60s come, and things change. And one, things I know, uh, one thing I, I noticed was you know, if you look at drumming in New Orleans, we start with Earl Palmer, who plays on as many good records as any musician on earth, I think. Yeah. And then guys like John Boudreau, who you used, and then Smokey Johnson and June Gardner, who two guys from another planet, as far as I'm concerned. And then it moves a little further with uh, Zigaboo Modeliste from The Meters. Uh, they're, they're all New Orleans drummers and all it's so different from what normal people were doing. Well, it was, uh, yeah, the, now in that evolution, you have to mention a guy named Hungry. Uh, his name was Charlie Williams. Uh, he was kind of short-lived, but right if you were to say if you were to start at Earl Palmer, mm-hmm. which is a marvelous place to start, the next person is Charlie Williams. Charlie. Hungry, we call him. Charlie Hungry. He, he was like the Earl Palmer with but with double clutching <laughs> going on and some other uh. and some other things. But uh, yes, these drummers, as you say, uh, we've always turned out wonderful drummers, and and they have revolutionized things, and they all had their place. Of course, we here can hear the evolution of of one behind the other, and I must say that, and the most unique, and the biggest transition, the biggest jump in it, I would say, was Zigaboo. Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering. I mean, where the meters? I mean, all those guys in the meters had been around, and you'd worked with the, the Nevilles before. But uh, you know, where did where? How did those guys get it together? I mean, was it just let's start playing and see what happens, and that's what happened? No, there is a secret. There is a secret nucleus, and it's very profound. Let's hear it. It's Art Neville. Hmm. Art Neville is a magic guy. If he put a group together of people who, who've been around, magic happens. And it has happened over and over again. And if he was to do it tomorrow, it would be magic again. Hmm. There's something about when Art Neville put a group together. Magic will happen. Uh, sparks will begin to fly. Syncopation galore. And he will funkify the scene. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Okay, I'm... Yes. I'm glad to know the secret. Did, I mean, you produced those great meters records. Were those were those songs? Were they riffs? Were they worked up instantaneously? Well, they they worked diligently. When they would get to the studio and work things out, uh, they would put the finishing touches. But I must say that I had less of a job as a producer with the meters than anyone else when they were recording themselves because. They were so self-contained and knew so much about who they were and where they wanted to go. All we had to do is open the door and let them in and lock them in. <laughs> Turn on a couple microphones. Yeah, those are some of the most amazing records. And I, I think when it, you know, there's a great moment when people hear those for the first time and their minds, you know, open up a little. Or you know, it's a, you know, I just, just love those records. You, you're talking about your your solo career not always your first thing but your record Toussaint came out in 71 and uh, you know definitely different from I was talking about Lee Dorsey as your sort of you know your your other self definitely a little different than a Lee Dorsey album were you comfortable with the the idea of a solo career or were you still thinking I'm just gonna do this once in a while if someone asks me once in a while if someone asks me that that was the way yes Uh, I 
again, I didn't focus on a solo career because uh, that was like uh, in between me doing uh, what I what I felt that I was really uh, at home doing. Mm. Uh, which was making, you made the Wild Chapatula's record around that time, which is a record that I would imagine over time has sold a giant amount of records. But uh, what were you guys thinking when you made that record? Well, again, the Indians, the Indians are so self-contained on who they are. Uh, they're similar to the similar to the meters uh, because the Indians have a tradition of who they are, and and you just let them do that. Whereas other folk, uh, like Lee Dorsey or Irma Thomas, uh, you write the songs and you teach it to them and coach them and get music together and hire the musicians. Uh, the Wild Chapatulas, uh, they come in and they wild their way on in and do what they do and wild on out. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Uh, 72, you've got your Life, Love, and Faith record. 73, you open Sea Saint Studios with Marshall Seahorn and... Now it's kind of a different sort of business, especially the time has changed, and now you've got people like ZZ Hill and Eddie James and Joe Cocker and Paul McCartney and Gladys Knight coming in, and a big record that we heard earlier, uh, LaBelle's Lady Marmalade. I mean, oh yeah, what a fantastic record that is. I turned that up loud, and boy, it's a killer record. I love that dearly. I love that whole scene back there. When you're in a studio and you're mixing that record, do you think... This is probably a hit record, or do you just never know because the music business is so capricious? Never know. Mm. Never know. Uh, in fact, uh, never know. And uh, uh, In fact, that is not the thought. You're just trying to get the best spirit, and if, you can, if magic happens, which you always want, you're glad that that happened, as far as happens. But as far as knowing, uh, uh, prognosticating that it's a hit... Uh, for someone else to do. Yeah. Uh, I heard somewhere that Bob Crew of the Four Seasons had some involvement in that record. Is that true? Oh, definitely. The song was written by Kenny Nolan and Bob Crew. Hmm. And I, of course, I arranged it and uh, did whatever else was to be done. And was Bob Crew down there? Oh, no, I've never met Bob Crew hmm. or Kenny Nolan. Okay. But, uh, yes, it was uh, out of the songs when they first came down, the, ma the manager, Vicky Wickham, said, and... We'd like you to hear a song and see if you think this would be one, because the girls like it, and we'd like to do it. And when I heard it, uh, it sounds so right for us. Of course we should do this. So how, how many minutes or how many days or hours from that moment till uh, you had the arrangement worked up and the, whole, and the band was actually playing it like we know it? Oh, uh, for, for, for that song, yeah, that it, it would have been just like uh, a couple of days later we'd been recording that, yes. It didn't take a whole lot of doing, uh, because uh, for some reason when I first heard it, I, the way it came out is that's the kind of groove I thought it should be happening when we're doing it in New Orleans. Mm. So that didn't take long at all. Uh, 75 Southern Nights uh, album comes out a couple years later, of course, a giant hit for uh, Glenn Campbell, who does it in such a different way than you do it. It's kind of amazing. Oh, yes, and I love his version dearly. Because he made it more of a real song, and I, I was, I was just trying to share a message in the life, in, in my life, a true message, uh, not as a song, uh, as a song, as songs go, but to, uh, to set a message, and I sung through a Leslie speaker to set it up in the trees and all, to just give an atmosphere, and to share some words, and uh, Glenn's version. 
uh, turns into a, a, a universal song that everyone can sing along with, and I like that very much. Yeah, I've got a question that I ask almost every guest, uh, which is, out of the um, the dollar amount of money that you deserve to have been paid, how much, what percent of that do you think you've actually been paid? Oh, I don't know how to think that. Uh, that's, in fact, uh, I just, I can't come anywhere near that. Well, how crooked is the music business? Oh, I don't think the music business is that crooked. Really? I think uh, some people ha- do business better than others, yeah. uh, but I don't think everybody's out to beat you. Uh, I think uh, many times if a company has a good artist, they would like that artist to be satisfied. So I I think uh, companies, for the most part, uh, would, would try and be fair. Hmm. And but- I know there are many... Stories of uh, contrary to what I'm saying, but I just don't don't uh, agree with all of. Them. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think you maybe are the first guest who who didn't answer ten percent or twenty five percent or something. Oh. It's usually below fifty percent. Is usually the answer to that question. Uh, what I've got a, a burning question. What from the '60s from the '70s is not, is unreleased? What is still out there? Are there are there shelves and shelves of tapes, or has everything been released at some point? Well, there are many outtakes and some songs that wasn't released, but uh, there's none that I that I'm thinking that. Uh, uh, it's a it's a sad day because they weren't. Some of them shouldn't have been released. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad some didn't come out. And uh, I sometimes I hear outtakes on the market that someone has purchased a master somewhere and it's out there. And uh, I'm almost a little bit uh, uh, cringe, I cringe a little when I hear some of them because I I would think, well, that's not really that wasn't worthy of coming out, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's when it's by my by myself because it was an outtake that as far as I'm concerned maybe it didn't work but I must say when I do hear it again even though I still feel that way about it it's kind of nice to hear an old friend <laughs> I guess yeah there's a reason why some things stay in the can and but yeah. so, sometimes in retrospect you know 30 years later there's a it sounds different you know uh, you made a record with Elvis Costello that we heard from earlier a couple of years ago, and uh, you've worked with Joe Henry a few times, and this has sort of all culminated in this new album, The Bright Mississippi, and you're doing songs by Jelly Roll Martin and Django Reinhardt and Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington and Sidney Bechet. Uh, how did the, the germ of this record c- happen? Joe Henry's brainchild all the way. Joe Henry did everything on this recording but play the instrument. <laughs> he chose the uh for one thing he said he wanted to produce me and I trust him dearly and I think he's a fine producer and I said yes immediately without giving a thought to what he had in mind. And when he began uh sending songs and the suggestions he had, I was a little I was taken aback uh a bit because uh I had no idea we'd be going in such a direction and now I am I am elated that he chose such a direction and so off the beaten path for me, and it's so comfortable, and I feel that uh, magic happened in the record, and it was all about Joe Henry's foresight. Mm. That's very generous of you. Uh, I've I've never read, I mean, every review I've read of this record has been extremely, extremely positive. Uh, It seems like it's kind of the right record for right now, for some reason. Well, I hope so. It it certainly is... uh, a different record for me altogether, and I'm so glad he saw it this way because uh, I really had a good time doing it, 
and he surrounded it me with the best musicians he could have gotten for this, and we had various combinations like duets on some of the pieces with just two instruments and then a full complement of two horns and rhythm and and it was just uh and also me and and Brad playing uh two guys playing piano at the same time, which I always have said is rare. Uh, Joe Henry, I must say, he really uh, struck a marvelous call at this time. Yeah, it's it's a very satisfying record. A recorded in New York City, right? Oh, yes, and that was the right thing to do as well. I, I, I guess that's where you stayed after Katrina when you left New Orleans, is that right? Yes, but that's not why I was done there, because by that time I was I was back commuting between New York and New Orleans, mm -hmm. which I'm staying in. I'm back living in New Orleans now, though I keep a place in New York. But I think he chose that because it was the best meeting place for these musicians, for one thing, from coming from different places. Also, it was a very fine studio, Avatar, which he was familiar with, and it was a superb place to be. Every decision he made was was wonderful mm. and right. Do you think there's a little New York City sound in the record? I never thought about that. I'm not sure what that. I'm not sure how to answer that intelligently. <laughs> then leave it alone. That's fine. Uh, it's a fantastic record, and you're hard at work touring uh, to to uh, to promote it. I guess to get the word out there. Uh, you're playing in New Orleans tomorrow at Snug Harbor. You're playing at the House of Blues uh, next weekend as part of the the Jazz Fest, right? Yeah. And and then you've got uh, some gigs in Las Vegas and a whole run of shows here in New York at the Village Vanguard. Right. And then off to Japan and uh, all over Europe and France and Switzerland and Spain and it's crazy. Uh, are, is it tiring? Is it elating? How do how do you feel? No, it's not tiring at all. Uh, and especially because well, I haven't done this kind of thing all of my life. This uh, turn and all happened right after Katrina. Before that, I was stationary at home and going into the studio and mm. whatever I did. Uh, musically, I would do it in the studio in New Orleans and send it out. Now I take it out. That's a whole different ball game, and it's very—I must say—that is is quite inspiring. It's not so comfortable till I can take it for granted. I must say, it's still—it's uh, uh, not the most comfortable place for me, but it's the most rewarding place for me right now uh, because the inspiration is so high. Before, when I would write and all, I, I would write from inspiration that was coming to me, but now I go out and get it by being in all of these different places and countries. It's, it's a rewarding time, and it's largely due to my collaboration with Elvis Costello, who uh, introduced, uh, by being connected with him, it was like catching a speeding train. <laughs> And uh, he introduced me to his world, which is the world. Yeah, he never stops creating 24 hours a day. Absolutely. I've never seen anyone like Elvis Costello. And also, he's very generous of, about it all, about what he does. Because uh, he, he brings so much to the table, but he always leaves enough space there for everyone else. Hmm. So when you're on the road, do you get a chance to write? Are you inspired to, to write? All the time. Huh. All the time. That's so what is next? Oh, for his writing, I, uh, I write all the time. In fact, when you call, I was writing. <laughs> but uh, So I don't know how to say what's next, but right now my primary interest is this recording that we present this on stage properly. Mm. 
How interesting. Uh, I've got one more question. Well, two more, really. The first one is, I'm going to New Orleans tomorrow, and I want to know where I should eat. Anywhere. <laughs> Anywhere. I mean, please. Uh, sincerely, but uh, I guess you're going to go down in, into the quarters, but if you want a shrimp po' boy, there's a place called Dini's in Bucktown where you can get the, the very best seafood there is. Uh, and there's a Dini's down in the French Quarter. If you're going to get dressed up, of course, Commander's Palace is the place. And there's wonderful food. All Anywhere you'd go, though, you'd be fine. All right. I, you can't go wrong. Uh, I've got the song Java queued up here. Your version from uh, when you were, I think, 18 or 19 years old. Is that right? Yes, yes. In fact, it was on the Wild Sound of New Orleans. Yeah. Danny Kessler was a talent scout going around the country and uh, uh, getting talent from here and there. And he had me to play... Uh, backup piano on Roland Cook and Roy Gaines recording and that's the first time he heard me and he kept going, he kept telling the engineer, turn the piano up and when that session was over he came to me and said, I would like to record you, could you get me enough material for an album when I come back in a couple of weeks and I said of course and of course uh, that was uh, the beginning of my recording career as, as, uh, as, a, as a single artist and Java was one of the songs. Yeah, well, it's an Im- it's an amazing record and uh, an amazing song. And uh, I urge folks to go see Alan Toussaint. He's coming to New York soon, and he's going to be in New Orleans the next few days. And uh, to check out the bright Mississippi, Mr. Toussaint, it has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, mine as well. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.
what you are Still she'll be your queen If you let him say Turn the rest 
Thank you. 